the wonder of the rising sun and the difficult times in Scotland in the late 1800s, early 1900s, the Celtic people in that land were struggling with identity, with a sense of hope, and there was a preacher, also a poet, by the name of George MacLeod, who, seeking to connect them with the power of Christ's resurrection, the wonder of the rising sun, spoke to them in sermons and poems poem that Randall and I would like to share with you as we begin our reflection on Luke 24 is from George MacLeod and the power of Christ's resurrection for the people of God in the midst of difficulty and surrounded by hardship. Let us hear these words together about the power of the risen Christ. Christ above us. Christ beneath us, Christ beside us, Christ within us. Invisible we see you, Christ above us. With earthly eyes we see above us clouds or sublime sunshine, gray or bright, but with the eye of faith we know you reign instinct in the sun ray, speaking in the storm, warming and moving all creation. Christ above us. Invisible we see you, Christ beneath us. With earthly eyes we see beneath us stones and dust and dross and messiness. But with the eye of faith we know you uphold. In you all things consist and hang together. The very atom is a light energy. The grass is vibrant. The rocks pulsate. All is in flux, but turn a stone and an angel moves. Underneath are the everlasting arms. Unknowable we know you. Christ beneath us. Inapprehensible we know you. Christ beside us. With earthly eyes we see men and women, exuberant or dull, tall or small. But with the eye of faith we know you dwell in each. You are imprisoned in the drug addict and the drunk, dark in the dungeon, but you are there. You are released, resplendent, in the loving mother, the doting father, the passionate friend, and in every sacrificial soul. Inapprehensible, we know you. Christ beside us. Intangible, we touch you, Christ, within us. With earthly eyes, we see ourselves dust of dust, earth of earth. But with the eye of faith, we know ourselves all girt about of eternal stuff, our minds capable of divinity, our bodies groaning, waiting for the revealing, our souls redeemed, renewed, intangible. We touch you, Christ, within us, Christ above us, Christ beneath us, Christ beside us, Christ within us, what need have we for temples made with hands, for the resurrected Christ is with us. Brothers and sisters, Christ 
is risen. He is risen indeed. Thanks be to God. Amen. It was the entry into Jerusalem where the crowd began to pick up on this chant that came directly out of Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The power of Psalm 118 for then and the triumphal entry is amazingly connected from that week to this week. For also, Psalm 118 contains within it remarkable and paradoxical truth that reverberates in today's message. First, though, let's just simply consider Psalm 118 by itself. It is, in our Bible, the very center Physically speaking, it has the central place physically in the Bible. It is just after the shortest chapter, Psalm 117, and it is just before the longest chapter, Psalm 119. From blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we move to what becomes and what is the center verse in all of Scripture. And it's fascinating because in our Bible there are 594 chapters before and 594 chapters after. And Psalm 118, verse 8, this verse is the center of our Bible. And here are the words. It is better to take refuge in the Lord our God than to put confidence in human beings. It is better to take refuge in the Lord our God than put confidence in human beings. Flowing from this centerpiece of faith and word, Psalm 118 continues, the Lord is my strength and my might. The Lord has become my salvation. I shall not die, but I shall live. And then continues these words. Psalm 118, verse 21. I thank you, O God, that you have answered me and you have become again my salvation. For the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's try that again. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. This centerpiece of the Bible, physically, is also the centerpiece of our faith spiritually. 
the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is a day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The wonder of the rising sun emerges out of this vital theme found in Psalm 118. The gospel writers want to make sure that we make this connection to what's going on from the rejection of this one named Jesus and the faith story of resurrection that now brings full circle this chief cornerstone of who and what Jesus is for us in resurrection. The stone the builders rejected. Some of you have read Robert Greene's book, The 48 Laws of Power. In that book, Robert Greene recounts this story. In 1502, in the city of Florence, there was a huge block of marble that had been purchased by the city. The mayor, Piero Soderini, I love that name, was intent on making this a sculpture or having a sculptor come and make this sculpture that would be a wonder of the world. The problem was in 1502, some undiscerning craftsperson bored a hole in the very place where the legs were to support this huge structure of a sculpture. A number of consultants were brought in carrying their briefcases and had determined that this block of marble that was so expensive and so gorgeous was now absolutely ruined. There was no way to recover the weight and the balance of this stone because of the way the hole had been bored through the center of the lower third. Piero Soderini was furious and had workers put the stone aside and stored in a warehouse. They even had a number of other sculptors, including Leonardo da Vinci, come and evaluate. All agreed it's lost. Nothing can be done, and the stone was rejected. Some people in Florence knew of a fellow in Rome who was a master craftsman, just beginning to develop a reputation as a Renaissance man, and they began to write, Michelangelo. And they said, this stone has been declared ruined and rejected. Could you come and see it? Michelangelo in 1502 traveled to Florence. He examined this stone. He took notes, made sketches. He went to Piero Soderini and said, I think there might be hope for this stone. Soderini at this point felt that so much money had been spent and so much time had been wasted. He said, it's impossible. Michelangelo said, let me try. So he began to carve and work. And so by the end of 1502 into 1503, Michelangelo, through his sketches and works and reevaluation, recognized that if the figure were leaning slightly to the side with the other leg spread out, if the right hand were moved to one of the legs to provide extra support, it's possible that this could work, a slingshot added, and it could be called David. 
it now stands in the Galleria dell'Accademia as one of the great works of art of all time. But it was a stone the builders had rejected. It was not seen as worthy. It was pushed aside. It was only because of the master that this stone could be reconfigured. And as Christians throughout the centuries now have saying, had joined and said, the stone that the builders rejected has now become our chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This theme begins to be woven throughout Scripture. It starts early. Our Jewish brothers and sisters will remind us that during Passover, they recite this simple reminder to one another. My father is a wandering Aramean. In other words, we come from nobodies. We are nobodies. But through God's grace we move from being rejected to being loved. This story continues into the 29th chapter of Genesis. From Abraham, we move through Jacob. And in the story of Jacob, the camera gradually shifts to somebody by the name of Leah. Now, we come to Leah through having heard that Jacob is madly in love with a woman by the name of Rachel. The Bible describes her as graceful and beautiful. Jacob is smitten and has no desire whatsoever for Leah. The contrast is clear. The Bible describes Rachel as graceful and beautiful and then describes Leah as having lovely eyes. We're told by scholars this likely is a Hebrew euphemism for she had a good personality. When I was in graduate school in Switzerland, my roommate was Italian and often would bring in friends and they would give commentary on our classmates. And they would say things like, Torna casa tua, tu sei mamma Luca, tu sei brutta. Torna casa tua, tua, immediatamente, adesso, grazie. Roughly translated, it is, turn around and go home back to your mama. You're not done yet. You got a good personality, but not good enough. Now, this is terrible, but this is the way Leah was described. She was rejected by her family. Her father gives her away and foists her in a clever ploy to Jacob. Jacob doesn't want her. Nobody wants her. She's rejected over and over again. And yet, Jacob goes ahead and uses her, and she begins to have sons by him. And we find out in Genesis chapter 29, as this theme begins to, to span out through the scripture, her first son's name is Reuben. She said, surely now my husband will love me. And her next son, we find out that he doesn't. She says, perhaps now my husband will stop hating me and will recognize that I have given him now two sons. And she named him Simeon. Then she bore him a third son. She said, 
Surely now, after three sons, my husband will see that I'm worthy of attention and love. And finally, she has a fourth son. Now up to this point, Leah perhaps is a perfect representation of the way many of us view the world. She is seeing her own self-esteem through the eyes of those around her, wishing so much for the approval of Jacob and Laban, her father, and other people. She's wanting so much for the world to appreciate her, and yet over and over again she's rejected, made fun of, cast aside. It's only in the birth of her fourth son where she awakens to a whole new paradoxical reality. In the paradox of this faith that is beginning to blossom in her spirit, she begins to see it's not so much what others think of me, but how I worship God. I'm going to name this child, she says, Judah, Judah which means praise. It is my relationship with my creator, not my concern about what others think of me that matters most in who I am and whose I am. I will give God praise in spite of all the problems and difficulties and what others are saying and doing and thinking about me. This theme really emerging with Leah becomes, as Amy Jill Levine at Vanderbilt Divinity School likes to say, a foundational story for our faith. For the other paradox about this story is that it is not the graceful and beautiful Rachel who becomes the matriarch of the Jewish and Christian faith. Ironically, paradoxically, it is the rejected, the unloved, the cast aside Leah who becomes, listen carefully, the great, great, great grandmother of David who is the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. In other words, our matriarch is not Rachel. Our matriarch The woman that started it all is the leftover, left out, rejected. Leah. It was her son Judah through whom the lineage of Jesus comes. The paradox of Easter. It was other women like Leah also rejected, alone, going to a tomb in a garden outside of Jerusalem where they expected to find a body decaying. With spices, they had shown up a sense of duty and loyalty in spite of lost dreams and hopeless tomorrows. They did not expect this story to continue. And yet they showed up. And what they discovered, a remarkable thing. The tomb is empty, and two angels give them the message, 
why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. They don't understand. They're still perplexed, but they wonder, could it be? Is it possible? They go back and they tell the disciples. And the disciples, true to form, are still clueless. And they say to the women, in rejection again, this is nothing more than an idle tale. It makes no sense. Our hopes are already dashed. Don't disappoint us any further. But then Peter goes to the tomb and he looks in. And the Bible here, I think, is intentionally vague. For he looks in and leaves simply with wonder at the possibility of a rising sun. And then perhaps going back to the rest of the disciples and the women together, they unpack what they're beginning to experience. And maybe in that moment, they begin to remember Psalm 118. The stone the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is God's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And this is a day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. For with voices from ancient days until now, we can join together and say, brothers and sisters, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let us stand together and join with other voices and hearts and spirits in singing, joyful, joyful, we adore thee. If God has touched your heart this day, we invite you to come forward on this beautiful resurrection day.